All right. Well, let's turn to Romans 13. We, we were in there a couple of weeks ago, but we're going to read a little bit. I have plagiarized an incredible amount of material from wallbuilders.com. So I've just given the credit where it's due. If you're really interested in it, I highly recommend that you go to that website. It's wallbuilders.com. It's an organization based on the Christian history of America. And uh, the, the, the leader of that group, I don't know if he's a CEO or chairman or whatever, but he has over 20,000 handwritten documents from the Founding Fathers. They're actual ink. And so it's, I find it very, very fascinating. Romans chapter 13. I didn't put the verse up, but I, I just wanted to read a little bit here. And let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we pray that you would have our hearts and our minds and our eyes on you, Lord. Now, you have given us this great country, but it's only by you. And it, it will pass away one day, and there will be nothing but you. I pray that we put things in its proper perspective. That when we're looking at lies or we're looking at our society being manipulated, Lord, we know that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And I pray, Lord, that we would have the proper perspective, and that is that your son is coming quickly, and he's going to set all things right. But I also pray, Lord, that as we look back, and we look at the blessings that you have bestowed on this country, Lord, we pray that we don't take them for granted or have them robbed by the enemy. And so we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In Romans chapter 13, verse 1, it says, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, for you will have praise from the same. Nowhere, I believe, in the world is this more true than in the United States of America. The freedoms and the liberties that we have. Now, I came from a militantly atheist Catholic family, as ironic as that sounds. A militantly atheist Catholic family. And I grew up in a West Coast public school. And so everything that I was taught from a wee lad to almost a voting adult was through those two lenses. I was taught in humanistic evolution. I was taught in the secular founding of America. I was taught that the government was... We succeeded from Great Britain because we had taxation without representation and that... We, that's the reason we threw the tea into the water, and that's the reason why, we, because of the Stamp Act. And I was taught that everything was based on economics. Everything is about business. And that we're a secular society. We've never been Christian, and that just was, uh, you know, propaganda from the past. But everything, we're, we're really learning what really happened now. This is called revisionist history. That is when the people that are in charge today are purposely and intentionally changing history to account for today's beliefs. And there is a whole segment of this society that believes in revising the Constitution. 
that it's up for change. You know, society changes and that we should be changing it. And the United States of America for over 200 years has been run by one document, the Constitution of the United States. It is the longest-running government based on one constitution. France has had five. We've been based on this solely. So let's go back to Independence Day. On July 2nd, 1776, Congress voted to approve a complete separation from Great Britain. And two days afterwards, on July the 4th, the early draft of the Declaration of Independence was signed albeit by only two individuals at the time, John Hancock, president of the Congress, and Charles Thompson, the secretary of Congress. Four days later, on July the 8th, the members of Congress took that document, read it aloud from the steps of Independence Hall, proclaiming it in the city of Philadelphia, America's first capital, after which the Liberty Bell was rung. The inscription around the top of the Liberty Bell is Leviticus 25.10. And Leviticus 25.10 says, And you shall consecrate the 50th year, proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you, and each of you shall return to his possession, and each of you shall return to his family. This is the verse that is stamped on the liberty bell that was rung the day that the Declaration of Independence was announced to the country. Of course, they want to whitewash anything that has to do with religion at that time. I was taught that all of the founding fathers, except for a few exceptions, were deists and atheists and universalists, meaning that they believed in all religions and all things and all, everything was okay. But when we actually look at the historical writings of the founding fathers, we look at the artifacts of the founding fathers, we look at the recorded speeches of the founding fathers, we look at their lives we see that it is a small minority that, that were universalists, deists, and agnostics. And even when you do, Benjamin Franklin is one of the biggest universalists and deists at the time. Did you know that he wrote a Bible commentary? Even the atheists were more spiritual than today's atheists. The number one are the the top five uh, people that we learn about in the United States history are the most secular universalist and deists. Several pastors signed the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. When they asked John Adams, who the founding father, who the most influential people towards the end of his life, who the most influential people were uh, for the Revolution... The majority of the names he listed were pastors who were not in government. I find that fascinating. Let's look at a couple of quotes. John Quincy Adams said, The highest glory of the American Revolution was this. It connected in one indissoluble bond the principles of civil government with the principles of Christianity. From the day of the Declaration, the American people were bound by the laws of God, which they all and by the laws of the gospel, which they nearly all acknowledge as the rules of their conduct. John Quincy Adams was the sixth president of the United States. Well, you're not taught that in the history books. 
You're not going to be taught that in public school. John Adams said, <clears throat> our second president of the United States, it ought to be, speaking of the 4th of July, commemorated as a day of deliverance by solemn acts and devotion to God Almighty. In fact, he quotes later that the two most important holidays in the United States of America are Christmas and the 4th of July, and that they should both be consecrated to God. They asked him uh, about it as he was getting older, and they wanted to know what an eyewitness thought of the revolution. Speaking of Christmas and the 4th of July, he said that Christmas was number one and the 4th of July was second. He said, why is that? Next to the birthday of the Savior of the world, your most joyous and most venerated festival returns on this day, the 4th of July. It was an interesting question. Why is it that in America, the 4th of July and Christmas were our top two holidays? Note his answer. It is not that in the chain of human events, the birthday of the nation is indissolubly linked with the birthday of the Savior. That it forms a leading event in the progress of the gospel, is it not? That the Declaration of Independence first organized the social compact on the foundation of the Redeemer's mission upon earth. That it laid the cornerstone of human government upon the first precepts of Christianity. Ooh. Now imagine, you know, an 18-year-old kid, a 17-year-old kid like myself, and I'm starting to watch documentaries, and I'm starting to watch uh, pastors. I'm, I'm watching speeches from David Barton, and he is telling me things that are radically different from everything that I've ever been taught. And I'm like, no, okay, they, that's, they're just trying to prove their point. You know, they're at a pastor's conference. And then he does something insane to me. He pulls out a book out of his back pocket. And he reads these quotes out of their original handwriting. The original, they sat there and they penned these things. Another quote from Samuel Chase he lived from 1741 to 1811. He was the Associate Justice of the United States Supreme Court and a signatory of the United States Declaration of Independence as a representative from Maryland. By our form of government, the Christian religion is the established religion, and all sects and denominations of Christians are placed upon the same equal footing and are equally entitled to protection in their religious liberty. I want to read again who he is, because you've never heard of him, have you? Ah, no, Samuel Chase, Associate Justice of the United States Supreme Court, a signatory to the United States Declaration of Independence as a representative from Maryland. You don't get any more, pardon my Southern Californian OG than that, any more original than that. But that's not what we're being taught. That's not what your kids are being trained. And we have an entire generation of kids. And even if you look back into the way that you were raised, and you, did you hear these things? Did you hear them from the church? Did you hear them from government? Did you hear them from schools? Did you hear them from teachers and professors? In that same speech, David Barton, he takes out another book. It's a college-level book. It's about this thick. And it goes through explaining how the American Revolution was based on a bunch of agnostics, atheists, deists, and universalists, how it was not a Christian government, how we had never been established that way. And then he says, well, let's check their sources. And then he, he goes to the back of the book, and it says, a letter from the authors. We have decided to do away with the scholarly apparatus of citing sources. 
literally a letter there saying that they didn't want to cite any sources. That's what kids are being taught in college. So this is what they do with revisionist history. Revisionist history, all you have to do in scholastic circles is quote another professor. So if one professor said something in the 1950s and then now you're quoting that professor who's quoting somebody else using circular logic. So you just get yourself in a nice circle of people that believe exactly like you do and then you quote the different sources and then that point proves your point. What David Barton does and other organizations like him, they go back to the original authors in the original context and explain what they're talking about. What is the same thing that I am taught in, as a youth? A certain phrase, a separation of church and state, right? We read that right there and said that we've established Christianity as the, as the, the religion of the United States. That, that, how could that be possible? Let me read again. It says, the most frequently referenced American source for the contemporary usage of the separation phrase today and then we interrupt. It's not found in the Declaration of Independence. It's not found in the Constitution. It's not found in any government sources whatsoever. It's found in an 1802 letter written from President Thomas Jefferson to the Baptists of Danbury, Connecticut, in which he, assumed, he assured them that because of a, quote-unquote, wall of separation between church and state existed, that the government would not interfere with or inhibit the religious practices or expressions, whether occurring in private or in public. What was he saying in his letter? The Baptists, we think of the Southern Baptists here in the South as they're everywhere. Right? There's more Southern Baptist churches than there are restaurants. And those times they were the minority and they were being persecuted by larger established churches, Anglican churches. First and foremost, Christ Church. Second, they were much larger, and the Danbury Baptists and other Baptist organizations like them were being picked on by them. And in some states, South Carolina being one of them at one time, the Anglican Church was the established church of the state. You had to pay your tithes to them. The IRS men knock on your door, hey, you haven't paid your tithes. I don't go to church. doesn't matter. That's the established church. And so what Thomas Jefferson was saying is, no, that is not allowed. The government has made this clause, this freedom of religion in America that every Christian church, that every Christian denomination, and in that case, any religion at all, is protected and the government cannot get involved. But in 1947, the Supreme Court reversed the traditional use of this phrase. For the first time, allowing the government to interfere with and even prohibit religious practices and expressions, especially when occurring in public. A complete reversal of the historical meaning of the phrase and its usage, both by Jefferson and those in previous centuries. Consequently, the modern application of this phrase bears nearly no resemblance to either its historical or biblical origins. When the Founding Fathers made the Constitution or the Declaration of Independence and other constitutions for other states in the United States, the most quoted source was the Bible. Number one. 
In fact, two-thirds of all the sources came from the Bible, and the other third came from three or four distinct books. I find that very fascinating. America is, excuse me, America was a Christian nation. And we are no longer. But I'm not worried about that. And the reason I'm not worried is it's, it's one thing for us to all go out and vote and to say we're a Christian nation again. But the Lord looks upon the heart. The nation of Israel could not be saved by the law. They could only be saved by grace. By grace alone are you saved. But it is very important to understand the blessings that God has bestowed on this nation because of those biblical foundations, because of that biblical heritage. And it is also equally important to understand that there is a war for hearts and minds in America to revise and to change the way that we look at politics, the way that you engage in your faith, the way that you pray, the way that you evangelize. When the first constitutional convention was established, they had a three-hour prayer service. That wasn't so, oh, let's just bring in the local pastor. You know, you just don't say the name Jesus and just invoke the Lord. Three hours. And those that were writing newspaper reports were talking about representatives, state representatives on their knees before God, praying for this nation. the separation of powers in America, the three distinct branches of government. Where does that come from? In Jeremiah 17, 9, it says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? That is one of the founding verses of this nation. That's kind of a bummer, huh? That's why they have three branches of government that are supposed to be co-equal because they never wanted the power in this country to be in the hands of one man because they knew that all people were sinners and needed to be saved by grace. That's why you have the executive, judicial, and administrative branches of government. That's why the Senate, the Senate makes laws. That's why the judicial court, the Supreme Court, interprets the laws. And that's why the president and the executive branch enforces the laws. The founding fathers knew this, and they they based this form of government. It had never before been seen in the world, except it can be found in the Bible. The separation of the priesthood and the kings. The separation of government where not all power and authority is in the hands of one person. The verse was encapsulated what Puritans, Calvinists, and others determined as the depravity of man. That is, the unrestrained heart of man naturally moves towards moral and civil degradation. Society, therefore, would be much safer if all power did not repose in the same authority. By utilizing the division of powers, a wicked branch might be checked by the other two branches. As George Washington explained in his farewell address, a just estimate of the love that the love of power, the proneness to abuse it, which predominates in the human heart, is sufficient to satisfy us of the truth of this position. The necessity of reciprocal checks in the exercise of political power by dividing and distributing it 
into different depositories has been established. Pre-planned, prayed over, sought over, talked about. You had groups of people with wildly different perspectives on how this government should be ran, and it was found at the foot of the cross through praying men and universalists and agnostics and deists working together based on the Christian ethics. Why did the founding fathers even decide to break away from Great Britain? There are those that we talked about when we had our study in Romans 13 that believed that the United States was made by grace and that they're actually disobedient to the word of God. We have to remember that the only book on the table in the library of many Americans in the 18th century, that's the 1700s, was the Bible, the King James Bible. That's all they had. They read the no TVs, no iPads, no newspapers. Newspapers were very expensive. It was the Bible. And we're taught taxation without representation. Do you know there's 27 reasons in the Declaration of Independence for the breaking away of the United States from Great Britain? For starters, when it comes to the American Revolution, students have been taught for several generations now that the main reason for revolt was taxation without representation. Now, truly, the best way to learn about the reasons for the revolution is to read the documents written by the men who were actually involved. I could probably count on one hand how many of us have actually read the documents of the men that were originally involved. But I've read history books this thick in, in my public school education of quoting different people. Sadly, most Americans don't even read the Declaration of Independence, much less any other documents of that era. We simply read other people's opinions and perspectives on the Declaration, the Constitution, etc. That's how we've come to the understanding that our fight for independence was based about economics and unfair taxation. Now, while it is correct, taxation without representation is listed among the colony's complaints. It is merely one of 27 different reasons why we declared our independence. Technically speaking, it's actually listed number 17, not even in the top half. Number 17. So unfair taxes didn't even rank in the top half of priorities that our forefathers listed. However, when we read the Declaration of Independence, we find that four of the 27 reasons for us succeeding from England have to do with judicial activism. Our nation's forefathers were tired of unelected judges making policy. How far we've fallen. They wanted to start a nation where people could keep the judges from going out of control. Where is that today? John Adams wrote that one of the two biggest reasons for separating from Britain was religious liberty. That was in the top five. You could not buy a Bible without buying a stamp from Great Britain, and all the Bibles could not be printed in the United States. They had to be imported from England alone. You couldn't print tracts. You couldn't print sermons. You couldn't print Bibles themselves. It's one of the major reasons why the United States broke away from Great Britain. In the 18th century, the king dictated which church the people had to belong to, what the people could do and what they couldn't do, as well as how to, how to and how not to express their faith. 
That is the separation between church and state that was intended when our Constitution was written. To keep the state from dictating which religion the people lived out, not to keep religion totally removed from anything having to do with the state. Huh. That's the original context for separation of church and state. And I have been lied to. I don't know about you. Maybe you went to a better school than I did. I have been lied to my whole life. That religion has nothing to do with politics and only dumb people believe in religion and it's just some fantasy that people live out and we need to keep it away from good, smart, free-thinking individuals. When the document that this country's been run by for over 200 years, they want us to believe was written by Neanderthals and how we need to update it for this modern civilization when the opposite is true. These men, these people were so much closer to the Lord. Now, we are taught that there was a generation of secular humanists. Now, we're going to boil it all the way down. The number two book, the number two book in the American household in the 1700s is the 1777 New, uh, New England Primer. That was what every child was taught. How to read, how to write, reading, writing, and arithmetic came from this book. Now, a secular civilization, of course, it had to be secular. We're going to go through the entire alphabet from the New England primer, and you will find how ignorant we truly are in this civilization. Let's start with A. A, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. Heaven to find the Bible mind. C, Christ crucified for sinners died. D, did deluge drown the earth around. E, Elijah hid by ravens fed. F, the judgment made Felix afraid. Oh, it keeps going, and I'm going to make you go through the whole alphabet. This is what kindergartners are memorizing in America in the 1700s. G, as runs the glass, our life doth path. H, my book and heart must never part. J, Job feels the rod, yet blesses God. K, proud Korah's troop was swallowed up. L, Lot fled to Zor, saw a fiery shower. Who knows where Zoar is in the Bible? You got to go look it up because kindergartners in 1777, they knew what it was. On Sodom's poor, and Moses was he who Israel's host led through the sea. And Noah did view the old world and knew. Oh, young Obadiah, David, Josiah, all were pious. P, Peter denied his Lord and cried. Q, Queen Esther sues and saves the Jews. R, young pious Ruth left all for truth. S, young Samuel dear, the Lord did fear. We'll keep going in the last section. T, young Timothy learned sin to fly. V, Vashti for pride was set aside. W, whales in the sea, God's voice obey. I, I mean, we're... We're looking here at Vashti, the wife of a Babylonian king in the Old Testament. That's what kindergartners are learning in America in 1777. X, Xerxes did die, and so must I. Y, while youth doth cheer, death may be near. Z, Zacharias, he did climb the tree, our Lord to see. Oh, wait, this is the baby stuff. Let's keep going. This is the creed that every American child had to learn. It is not short. I'm just prepping you now. 
memorized. They had to memorize. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, which was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he arose from the dead and ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge both the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. There are different versions, and this is the Catholic version in America. See, because the government did not institute what church you go to. They couldn't tell you. But this is what they had to memorize in the colonies. And they would have different revisions. There was a hundred question test at the end of the New England Primer. I'm just going to give you a couple of the questions. Question 85. What does God require from us that we may escape his wrath and, and do to us for our sins? Answer. To escape the wrath and curse of God. Due to us for sin, God requireth of us faith in Jesus Christ, repentance unto life, with diligent use of all outward means, whereby Christ communicateth to us the benefits of redemption. You don't pass elementary school unless you're answering these questions correctly. Question. What is faith in Jesus Christ? Faith in Jesus Christ is saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. You have to memorize that answer. Question 87. I think we're going to 90. What is repentance unto life? Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of the true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from into God with full purpose of and endeavors after new obedience. Imagine your eight-year-old memorizing this around the table. Question 88. What are the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicateth to us the benefits of redemption? The outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicateth to us the benefits of redemption are his ordinances, especially the word, sacraments, and prayer, all which are made effectual to the elect for salvation. What, how is the word made effectual to salvation? The Spirit of God maketh the reading, but especially the, the preaching of the word and effectual means of convincing and converting sinners and building them up in holiness and comfort through faith and to salvation. Are you getting bored yet? Because they had to memorize a hundred of these. And we're getting bored after four. Question 90. How is the word to be read and heard that it may become effectual to salvation? That the word may become effectual to salvation, we must attend thereunto with diligence, preparation, and prayer. Receive it with faith and love. Lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. This is the 1777 New England Primer. This is elementary school. This is what Americans, by and large, up until about 1810, when they had a new revision come out, we're being taught. But we're told today that America is not founded on the Bible. Yes, there are many Christians, but that we were, they were always a secular government. Christianity had nothing to do with it. God had nothing to do with it. It was a bunch of people who wanted to come together and make an atheistic society. That's Marxism. 
That is not American republicanism. And we do not have enough time to go after quote, after quote, after quote, to go after founding father, after founding father, after founding father, and to see. If you're very interested, I, I recommend that you look up Christ Church in Philadelphia. George Washington and his family had a booth there. At that time in Christ Church, your family had a pew, and it had a door on it, and your family's name was on it. George Washington went to that church faithfully every Sunday for the six years that he was president of the United States. They have an emblem. Five of the founding fathers all went to that church, including our universalist friend, Benjamin Franklin. He had a pew. He was in church more often than the atheist. And yet he is one of the founding fathers that is quoted most often as being a universalist. We are being lied to. We have this revisionist history with people that are trying to move this country in a different direction, and the founding fathers knew it was going to happen because they knew that the heart is deceitfully wicked, and who could know it? Just to bore you with some more facts, an, an English representative from Great Britain came to the colonies and reported back to the king. His complaint to the king was, these colonists, if you ask any one of them, will say they have no king, they have no minister, and they have no governor other than Jesus Christ alone. That was an insult at that time. And now, those beliefs that the founding fathers have have been trampled, not by foreign powers, not by other governments, but by Americans. We try to strip away our national identity. They try and strip away our history. They're trying to strip away anything good and holy. And from 1963 on, you cannot have corporate prayer, public prayer, led by an adult in schools, except for, and of course it depends on what state you're in and the enforcement, except for unless it is a student-led body and it's extracurricular activities and they're invited by the children. But... You have sex ed being taught by liberal, agnostic, atheist, secular humanists who have no moral compass in what to teach our kids. You have secular humanism being taught in the science class. No other version is allowed. No other input. It is illegal to teach creationism next to evolutionary thought. Illegal. Then you go to the history class and you're taught revisionist history, trying to whitewash American kids to believe that Americans were not Christians back in the day. And if they were, they were a a loud majority. And yet we look at the textbook that the kids were taught and we're being shown that Americans in church today know less about the Bible than a six-year-old in America in the 1700s. That's how far this, this country has fallen. We're not improving, we're devolving. But the good news is that Jesus Christ is coming back quickly because our hope is not in the governments of man, but in Jesus Christ alone. That's what the founding fathers knew, and that's what they based their hope on, and that's what, when they sat around the table and said, guys, let's risk our lives and our families and our countries and our churches, and let's stand up against the country that has never been defeated in battle in the history of the planet, and has taken over Africa, Australia, Northern Europe, Canada, and the United States, and we're going to break away by faith in God. 
They had no idea that they were going to win. They had no idea that there was going to be a successful country for centuries to come. No idea. But they did it by faith. I tell you, that's the way that we'll win this country back. Who cares what the results are? We bow our knees to the Lord. We begin to grow in Him. We begin to live what we believe and believe what we live. And regardless of what the outside world is trying to teach us, we must look and say, that's not biblical, that's not right. I don't care what the majority is. And my family comes from a unique history. In 1941, my family was living in the Netherlands when the Nazis invaded. They were taught a new ideology. They were taught a new culture. They were taught a new value system. And the government and the people and the neighbors, they all went along with it. I tell you that in America, it's much more difficult because we're like the toad that's being boiled in the water. We didn't feel the change. We didn't know it was coming. It wasn't a foreign army, and yet the change has been just as drastic. And this is not a political sermon. This is a godly sermon based on the principles of Jesus Christ and what he has laid down through godly men and women in this nation. See, the Bible tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Therefore I exalt first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceful life in godly, godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. I think about that constitutional convention. I think about the Declaration of Independence. I think about those sermons of pastors that were teaching about biblical principles for government. And I think about the three-hour prayer service that was our government leaders. How many of us have prayed three hours in the last week total? The last month? The last six months? When was the last time you dedicated 30 minutes to praying? Just you and the Lord. I tell you, we must remember that this is not a battle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers in high places. This is a spiritual war, and it starts with your heart and your mind. And so we're going to spend about the next 10, 15 minutes just praying together as we always do on our midweek sermons. Pray loud enough one at a time so that we can all hear and agree together. Father, we come before you so blessed what so many people have done by faith to enjoy the freedoms that we have here. I pray that we use them to proclaim your name, to pray, to read, and to grow closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen.